I've never done a show on hobos before, and I'm guessing hobos don't come to your mind a whole lot. But that'll change this morning, as I am delighted to be joined again by Graham Stinnett, the man from the University of Connecticut and the Dodd Center and the Archives and Special Collections in the Yukon Library. There's an exhibition in the Dodd Research Center Gallery right now called There and Back Again, A Hobo's Tale to Examine the Nature of Hobo Culture. Graham, good morning. Thanks for coming in today. Morning, Wayne. Thanks for having me. Hobos? Where'd this idea come from? So, for the longest time, I've been trying to come at our railroad collections, which are very extensive. Um, We are the official repository of the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad Company. So, because of that, um, that's not my area. My area is the alternative press, uh, the human rights collections, the alternative view, basically, of mainstream things. The hobo is as alternative as you can possibly get, as far as looking at a very official group of records. Um... So it also stemmed from a visit that I took once to the uh, Hobo Museum in Britt, Iowa uh, in the late 2000s. And they have a gathering there every single year that people have been going to for over 100 years. And uh, they celebrate basically the vagabond, the tramp, the folklore that is the hobo. All right, what exactly is a hobo? So I've gotten calls about this when I've done uh, my show on WHUS about it. A hobo will work. Uh, not to be confused with a bum, uh, definitely do not refer to hobos as bums. This is sort of the distinction. Uh, Did they get honked off of that if you call a hobo a bum? Absolutely. Really? Um, Well, I'll remember the next time I see a hobo. (laughs) So it really kind of started back, uh, at the end of the Civil War, um, folks would be coming back from the war looking for work. Uh, sometimes it was freed men, uh, after slavery, they'd be carrying hoes with them. People would refer to them as a ho-boy. So then it just eventually got condensed into hobo. This is one of the possible origins of the phrase hobo. Uh, Another is it's a permutation of the word homeward bound. It could also be that. So again, the traditions of hobos are predominantly an orally past, you know, right. Sort of how do you do it? Where's work? Um, Who's going to be nice to you as you're traveling on the road? What is a yard that you shouldn't go into where the, the railroad police might catch you? So there's sort of a, an oral tradition of this, and finding documentation about it was really difficult. So I had to kind of do some hunting and pecking in the collection and uh, some acquiring to figure it out. In 2020, are there still hobos? Absolutely. Um, I think the way that we can look at the history of hobo culture really relies on economic and political fluctuation. So similarly, after a great sort of tumult such as the Civil War, People then began taking to the road, getting into the boxcar. Uh, similarly, during uh, World War I, uh, sabotage was a huge issue of the major transportation corridors. We have um, records from insurance companies hiring men to police the railroad to prevent any sort of terrorism going on or kick off a hobo with a German last name. These things kind of went hand in hand. Uh, so. That is another moment when people were policing the railroad very heavily, but since 9-11, transportation has been increasingly uh, locked down and secured, so it is now a federal crime, but that doesn't prevent people from doing it. Now, your display, There and Back Again, A Hobo's Tale, continues through February the 28th, so people still have a couple of weeks to check this out. When they go, what do they see? So it's a combination of our 
original older records from the railroad company. Um, it's pictures of boxcars. It's uh, gondola cars. This is something that I've learned, too, is what kind of cars are sort of conducive to riding in. Um, and then mixed in with that are sort of the mid-1970s to 1980s stuff, which generally comes from a period of hoboing that was more conducive to just the rail fan, persons who liked the railroad, wanted some adventure, and would go jump. Um, and then from that period on comes into the sort of 1990s and 2000s period, which is predominantly a, a revitalization by younger folks who usually are in the sort of punk rock aesthetic, and they sort of look to hobo in terms of uh, the freedom that it brings, the sort of independence, you know, the American westward expansion, um, being able to kind of just pick up and go. So tell me which items in your exhibit have drawn the most reaction from everybody, from students to non-students. Uh, I have a big poster uh, in the in the collection that is a series of symbols that are used. Uh, so this is kind of something that I think people have have maybe a little bit more familiarity with, um, where hobos would mark places on the landscape with chalk, uh, whether it's a safe place to go, whether you could get a meal at this location, a nice woman might live in this home who might give you some work. Um, and they would always mark these little places so that you wouldn't necessarily see it, but it was just out of uh, the line of sight. Uh, I've painted the back wall of the gallery with chalkboard paint, so you can take your chalk, go to the, the wall, and sort of draw your moniker or your symbol, whatever it might be. So there's an element of interaction trying to kind of draw out the sort of artistic and aesthetic. So were, were these symbols on that chart something only hobos would know? Was it like a little internal language, or... If I walked up to see it, could I figure out what they were talking about? Not really. I mean, there's kind of like a, you know, a series of lines. It's very rudimentary kind of scrawling. Um, but again, you know, there wasn't like an official handbook that was passed out to all hobos who had to know how to read these symbols. You would just eventually learn it. It was, it was taught to each other as you guys would kind of travel through the jungles into the rail yards. How do people see this exhibit between now and the 28th? So they can come to the Archives and Special Collections, which is located at the University of Connecticut, Thomas J. Dodd Research Center. Uh, we're open Monday to Friday from 9 to 4 p.m. It's right there at the archives. Um, if you have any questions, you can also email us at archives at uconn.edu. And uh, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We're talking about it pre pretty regularly. You had a story about BYU that pertains to this topic. Graham, what would that be? Uh, yeah, I got asked. I'm not quite sure how they found out about it. I think probably just through the news line somehow. But uh, Probably Ken Best, who connected me with you on this. There's a good chance. Good morning, Ken. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. Uh, yeah, basically I got asked for an interview that I'll probably be doing uh, this Wednesday. I think it'll be airing the following week. It's on BYU's Sirius XM radio station. Um, yeah, they kind of just wanted to know what the life of the hobo was, uh, sort of like yourself. So I'm excited to talk about it anytime. Well, it's one thing when we're 10 miles south of the Dodge Center. They're 2,000 miles west. I'm just intrigued by that. But I might add, and I thought of this earlier when you're talking about Iowa and things like that, that that's a big train culture out there. We are right here near the tracks that come through Willimantic. But out there in the west and midwest, trains are, and they, they got these 100-car trains and all that. It's a big deal. So I'm sure the hobos were big on that as well. <laughs> I think a big difference, too, is this sort of western expanse, right? You're you're not necessarily hoboing from uh, Willimantic to New York City. You know, you're looking to try and get as far as you possibly can. And 
you know, a large part of the nature of hobos is what used to be referred to as the fruit tramp, uh, migrant laborers who are changing locations in the United States by season, depending on when the fruit was picked in certain parts of the country. So, um, you know, that tradition still exists of migrant labor, people trying to travel for work based on season, and you can travel north to south pretty easy on a, on a, on a train. Is it safe to assume that these hobos, the migrant laborers, were being paid under the table? Because I'm assuming a hobo does not file a 1040. Yes, uh, I think you'd be right on that. Um, and also during the Depression, you know, my my grandfather, he hopped trains for work, for adventure back in the 30s. Um, you know, this is part of just the, the tradition of trying to get by, especially during the Depression era. Um, and whether the Pinkertons were being called to crack down on hobos, I'm not quite sure, but... Uh, so a lot of people around here read the Chronicle, the Bulletin, the Current. What is the Hobo Times? So this was a uh, sort of small print run newsletter um, that operated in the 1980s and 90s was its most robust period. But as I was mentioning earlier, this is kind of the rail fans uh, sort of enthusiasm about um train hopping and they would kind of look at the railroad in a different way they also appreciated you know the locomotive the sort of efficiency of the railroad as most railheads are very into um, but they sort of also saw it as the adventure seeking side of things so they would print up a regular newsletter um, send it out to you know the members who wanted to receive one it would talk about good yards um, to hop out of they would have poetry meetings uh, they would catch up with each other you know wherever they happened to be uh, and they would try and just tell their stories through this small newsletter. Is it safe to assume that the the man, the gendarmes, would try to get a copy of that to try to figure out where they can rouse these people? You know, I think a lot of misconceptions are out there about um, the hobo and the bull. There's a really famous movie, The Emperor of the North Pole, um, with uh, Lee Marvin and Ernest Borgnine, where it basically pits the world's greatest hobo against the world's worst police of the railroad. Um, I think that that sort of is part of this larger tale of American folklore, but, you know, I think rail workers usually were fine with hobos. I think they just wanted to make sure that if people were going to ride the train, they were going to do it safely, and that is a big issue that uh, obviously still exists. It's not a, it's not a safe uh, piece of adventure. It's actually very dangerous. Speaking of films, tell me about the 2005 documentary film who is Bozo Texino by Bill Daniels? So this was a really great film that I'd acquired for the collection, um, and we screened it actually last Thursday uh, at the archives. It basically documents um, railroad graffiti, or what hobo kind of train hopping uh, graffiti is called the moniker, where you're leaving your name, but it is kind of a chalk or grease pencil um, description of yourself. You know, what is your symbol? Kind of like they would leave the symbols on the, uh, on the fence posts and, and curbsides. Uh, the boxcar was usually how you could put your name down, and wherever you would travel, you would be leaving your name. So the attempt to try and track one of the most prolific uh, moniker writers was this individual who wrote Bozo Texino and would draw a little cowboy with a cigarette. Um, and it turns out that he was actually a Missouri uh, Pacific rail worker who just would write this on every single car that he worked on, 
but it became so prolific that people in the 80s and onwards started to redo the Bozo Texino. So in a way, just trying to mime and continue the past. Did you get a good turnout for this reception? We did, yeah. We had uh, some, some committed folks who were really into hobos. I didn't think uh, many, if any, <laughs> folks would show up, but yeah, we had a good turnout. I got to think, though, that now there's an exhibit going on at the Dodge Center about this. There's going to be even more fan club following of hobos who... To be honest, I hadn't given a thought to until we booked this program. And now there's some really good stuff coming out on this. So let's see how that develops. Are hobos equal opportunity? Are there female hobos? I think we all have this male stereotype about guys being hobos. What about female hobos? It's a really great question. So there's a couple of very sort of uh, canonical stories about train hopping. One of them is written by Boxcar Bertha. Um, she's kind of the legend of the female hobo riders. Uh, another series of stories by Leon Ray Livingston about A Number One. They kind of set down this path of, of writing these kinds of stories. Um, but also in the 1990s in our zine collection, which is more written from the sort of punk aesthetic, uh, a lot of the DIY guides on how to train hop are written by women, and they sort of explicitly say, you know, try and learn how to train hop from a woman. You know, there's going to be different ways that you're going to think about weight distribution, what pieces are going to be safe to grab onto to lift yourself up. So there's an interesting kind of uh, way of going about passing on information for safety for women, and there are women hobos who, who purvey that. I think you just used like an inside term. You called it a zine collection. Is that like magazine collection? That's exactly it. So starting largely in the mid-70s, um, small print runs of very easily reproducible uh, documents would be written by anybody. It was basically getting outside of the publishing circle where you kind of had to be vetted, you needed money, etc. Um, so then in the 1980s, when people started to really share art and information about the subcultures they were interested in, uh, it was a very DIY, print-at-home, um, fold, cut, paste, and distribute uh, way of getting information out. And when you dropped the name Boxcar Bertha, I needed more information, so I Googled it, and you know, I, I saw Martin Scorsese on the Oscars last night. Well, by golly, there's a Martin Scorsese film called Boxcar Bertha, a low-budget 1972 American romantic crime drama a film directed by Scorsese, a loose adaptation of Sister of the Road, a pseudo-autobiographical account of the fictional character Bertha Thompson. It was Scorsese's second feature film. The film tells the story of boxcar Bertha Thompson and Big Bill Shelley, two train robbers and lovers who were caught up in the plight of railroad workers in the American South when Bertha's implicated by the murder of a wealthy gambler. The pair became fugitives. It stars Barbara Hershey, David Carradine, John Carradine, and it uh, goes on from there. Any thoughts about the Boxcar Bertha movie? I mean, you ought to have showings of that during this ex exhibition. I think th it also demonstrates <laughs> that, you know, there's more story to the folklore about what a hobo is. You know, we all think about the bindle staff, uh, the stick, you know, you've always got your hat slightly askew. Um, that's all part of our sort of tradition of America, right? You're thinking about what the, the hero of the down and out is, the Big Rock Candy Mountain, you know, this sort of dream of always going and finding something a bit more prosperous for yourself. Um, and I think that's really what we've propped a lot of our American narratives on. So the hobo is right in line with that. Now, I don't know how many people in this part of the state 
understand the old New Haven Railroad. Nowadays, you get Metro North, and if you have to go to New York, you can get to train from New Haven or other stops along the way and go to Grand Central or take the Amtrak and get to Penn Station and so forth. But I spent a couple of years in the 60s living in Trumbull, working in Bridgeport, going to Yukon, and I took the New Haven Railroad a lot. And Graham, let me just tell you, what a dump that railroad was. You know, they fixed it up quite a bit. So your collection has photos of trains and railroad scenery from the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad collection. Is the old New Haven Railroad part of that? Yeah, so basically the <laughs> the 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 railroad company itself, um, after Amtrak basically bought up all of these rail lines, they would then distribute the records to locations that probably were the best places for retaining that information. So we were designated the best place for this particular railroad company. Um, in terms of its breadth, you know, it ran up until the 1960s, and uh, it was, you know, one of the first, but one of the earlier to kind of turn the tide of the end of the railroad in that sense. Um, but a lot of it, yeah, was uh, predominantly commuter trains, um, sort of rapid actions getting you into New York City as fast as it could. But just like most of other commuter train passages, it eventually uh, kind of got caught up with the market and automotives, and that really turned the tide for railroads in general. I remember back in the days getting on the old New Haven Railroad in Bridgeport and the train would stop in Fairfield, Southport, and Roten Heights and all that kind of stuff. And as I recall it, I think the uh, the 7.30 train left at 10.30. <laughs> that railroad was never on time. It was horrible. But, you know, Metro North is pretty good now, and they run pretty close to on time. All right, we're talking hobos, talking railroads and stuff like that. There and back again, a hobo's tale is on display at the Dodd Center until February the 28th. And we're joined this morning by archivist Graham Stinnett, who curates this event. So I'm thinking about the concept of a hobo, and I had this image in my head, Graham, of the guy walking down a railroad track, or maybe on a railroad car, with a long stick and a little pouch of stuff tied in, I don't know if it's a handkerchief, a neck, a neckerchief, whatever it is. Is that a hobo? Well, that is that image of the bindle staff that you're referring oh, to. Ooh. And, uh, you know, what he or she would probably be carrying in that, you know, image that we've all kind of drawn up um, usually is going to be something that you... Uh, can throw into the car really quick and you can prop yourself up on. So that's one of the rules. Carry a bag that you can throw in really quick, take out something you can rest on, um, bring some food that is not perishable, so a can of food or something that isn't going to go bad. You're going to need some insulation. Uh, like I just held up a banana. <laughs> that might last you. <laughs> might get squished, though, in the bag if you tie it too tight. Right. And then some thousand-mile paper, cardboard, um, the best insulation you can get to put down on the, on the floorboards because a lot of the trains nowadays are steel instead of wood, so they've got less insulation to them. And uh, you're going to get wet and knocked around a little bit. So bringing whatever you had uh, in, that, in that pack with you was kind of your means to survive. What was the crew of the railroad's role with the hobos? Because I think everybody knew that those guys hopped aboard trains and got around. And occasionally they'd be spotted by one of the crew. Did the crew allow it? Did they kick them off? What was their responsibility in that? I think it was an unwritten rule um, and kind of led to, you know, either 
someone having a hard and fast line about no hobos are going to ride this train, or um, they just want you to do it safely. So there's a couple of locations on the the older trains, especially such as the ones that had the the dead cars in them, which were sort of a second uh, locomotive that you could have a washroom in, a couch, you know, something where you could allow somebody to come in and sit and maybe ride ride with you safely. Um, but the other you know, incidents where somebody was uh, in a coal car and, you know, you were about to receive a load and all of a sudden nobody told you that this uh, huge amount of stuff is going to get dumped on you. You know, that actually is somebody's fault and that's a difficult thing to have to deal with. You are a Minneapolis guy. Are there fewer hobos in Minneapolis than there are in, say, the southern states? Yeah, absolutely. Temperature is a huge part of that. However, um, Minnesota has a series of major junctions that people would try and get to from the west coast. So a lot of those trains were coming through North Dakota, coming through Montana. Um, they'd end up around the Minneapolis freight yards, and then they'd be heading south to Chicago, another major thoroughfare to get you down to New Orleans, basically. Um, so very strong hobo culture in Minnesota, more so than New England, largely because of this proximity to how many stops you'd have to make to get on your way. Safe to assume that the present-day hobo culture hitches more rides on freight trains than they do, say, the Amtrak Acela? Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> business class is not the preferred hobo way of travel. Tell me about the David Peters Railroad Collection. Yeah, so this is another edition that I pulled from for the exhibition, which is fantastic. So we have this New York, New Haven, Hartford Railroad collection. That's the company records. Um, I'd say some of the most interesting stuff are the rail fans, such as David Peters, who just took it upon himself for the last, you know, however many decades to just amass a massive body of work of... Uh, you know, old defunct railroad collections to photographs that he's taken. He worked for the railroad, so he also collected objects, um, you know, brakeman's lanterns, this kind of stuff, dater nails, and he also collected uh, hobo stuff. And so I was able to draw from his collection for the books, the travel logs, um, a lot of the sort of obscure ephemera that most railroad folks would not have collected. Are you a railroad guy? Do you just sit there and ogle when a train goes by? No, but I will say... <laughs> I do. <laughs> I mean, you're 10 feet from it, so, well, you know. Let me tell you this. Though, I, when my car is parked down the back, and when it's time to go, and one of those trains goes by, I don't get in the car. I sit and watch. Sometimes I wave to the engineer, and I watch him go by. Uh, those things are just, to me, majestic. And the fact that, you know, we haven't sent them out to pastures is... You know, an amazing sort of, uh, I guess, testament to the role of the railroad network that still exists in the U.S. But something that I will say that I have started to look for whenever I think about the railroad now is is the different things that maybe what the hobo would be looking for, which is monikers, number one, who is tagging or writing on the trains, which ones look older than more recent ones that are spray painted, uh, what sections of the gondola cars or the grain cars that actually have these porches that you would be looking for to jump into to ride safely. Um, there are certain things now that the hobo would be looking for that is a little different than what the traditional rail fan is looking for, which is, you know, the number on the locomotive. How many cars are there? Are hobos unique to the USA, or are they a worldwide phenomenon? I mean, as far as there has ever been a railroad, there is a hobo. Uh, these things kind of just live simultaneously. Um, we have photographs of folks riding trains in India. Um, 
we we know that the railroad that started largely in England um, also had hobos. Uh, Mexico definitely uh, has a strong hoboing culture. I'm not sure about today, but historically, if there's a railroad, there is a hobo. What's the Charters Country Blues Archives? Yeah, so this is one of our larger audio collections uh, from the Sam and Ann Charters collection, and Sam and Ann tried to basically document uh, the Delta Blues, the country blues, uh, predominantly unrecorded material of these old blues folks who were playing in the American South. And this, the way that I approached it for this exhibition is that many of these, these blues guys are talking about hoboing. They're talking about being down and out. They're talking about trying to get away from troubles. They're trying to, you know, find that greener pasture and... Uh, John Lee Hooker's Hobo Blues is a fantastic sort of ballad to getting down to the yard and hopping out. So you're actually playing this in the gallery. That's right. Although yeah. I do recommend adding King of the Road by Roger Miller to it because that does seem to be appropriate. Agreed. Know. Very much. Yeah. Now, when this whole concept of the network of rails went national, went regional, then national. Is that when hoboing really took off? Yeah, I mean, this history of the expansion west um, and for a warmer and possibly prosperous, uh, you know, westward expansion, that's kind of the history of migration in the United States. So as far as the railroad connecting up between the Pacific and the Atlantic, that allowed people to have much more free access to uh, moving between seasons, moving between work, um, Things like the gold rush obviously brought a lot of people out west, too. Um, so, yeah, basically this network that can get you up north in the, in the summer, but then get you down south in the winter is, is key for the hobo travel. And the fact that hobos travel around a lot, and you made it clear earlier today that they're not bums, they're looking for work, oftentimes migrant labor, things like that. But many people's first impressions of the big world out there came from the hobos because they got around more than some of the folks who were homebodies. That's right, yeah. So in terms of being able to share spread news, uh, again, this is the oral tradition of what train hopping is about. Um, a lot of folks would be bringing information back to the middle part of the country where you wouldn't really have a lot of access to coastal uh, climbs. Um, especially during the Depression when folks are looking to go west from Oklahoma, you know, thinking about the Grapes of Wrath and these places that were really hit hard, uh, you could basically send information back, come back and tell folks that, hey, there's actually work out in California or up in the apple orchards of Washington. Graham, who is A number one? So this is, again, like uh, Boxcar Bertha in a way, a sort of famous but most likely fictional character that was written by Re Leon Ray Livingston and uh, there's a series of books that he produced in the late 1800s into the early 1900s where he was kind of warning against the dangers of train hopping because all of a sudden the railroad was this thing that could take you as far as you wanted to go either from your home if you're a runaway uh, somebody who's just looking for adventure and every page of the series of books that he wrote begins with a testimony that says like you will lose your legs or for sure end up in a pauper's grave if you do the things that I'm describing as the most exciting thing in the world so he's uh, he's writing about um, the life and possible romance of what a hobo's life would be a number one claims to have traveled 500,000 miles for seven dollars and 61 cents and titles such as The Ways of the Hobo and The Trail of the Tramp. 
Also in your current exhibit at the Dodd Center are selections from the 100 Commandments of Riding the Rails. What are some of those commandments? Yeah, so one of them is, uh, you know, bring that cardboard with you, that thousand-mile paper. Uh, another one is there is no fence without a hole in it. Um, so the idea that you can always get into a train yard is uh, is key. Um, another is be sure to wear insulated uh, clothing with many pockets. Um and always stay away from the air brakes. This is basically where the cars connect between each other. It's one of the most dangerous parts of the train. Um, always look both ways, you know, crossing railroad tracks, just simple information like that, but really important ones to keep you safe. Is one of the missions of what you do at the Dodd Center to be educational in the sense that this is an interesting topic, that you really can't find information on many other places. So even the student body can come and learn about this railroad culture of hobos. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because we're at a research institution that is tied to an educational department, uh, such as a you know tier one university for research, uh, education is the mission, but we are also archivists who collect, preserve, make accessible, one-of-a-kind, unique, uh, rare materials that basically aren't anywhere else. Um, so that is a huge goal of ours, is to make sure that people know that this information is being collected in small places. Um, the hobo collection really overlaps several of our collecting areas, as you've just been, you know, describing. Um, and that's one of the key parts of exhibition, is being able to kind of draw out interesting threads that you might not know of or find in historical collections. So in this exhibit, There and Back Again, A Hobo's Tale, ends on February 28th, and it leaves destination Bangor, Maine. What replaces it? What's the next project you're working on? Yeah, the next exhibition is going to relate to our Maurice Sendak collection, um, one of our newer acquisitions in the Northeast Children's Literature Collection, which is what we have. Um, you'd mentioned Francelia Butler earlier. She is a member of our collection of many... Uh, well-known children's authors, so that's going to be coming up in the exhibition gallery next. Um, and currently on display at the William Benton Art Museum uh, is an exhibition of some more of our historic collections. This is late 1960s daily campus photography uh, by a photographer named Howard Goldbaum who um, documented from a student's perspective what student activities were and that's a really rare view we don't actually have a lot of that stuff in our photography collection most of it was the communications department taking shots of what kids were doing on campus um, whereas one of them walking around and being at the motorcycle meetup which is a photograph that we have uh, documenting you know kids doing what kids do on campus so it's it's a cool exhibition is all that analog stuff now converted over to digital? So this collection in particular, um, we received the negatives, and the negatives then were scanned uh, for this exhibit and then printed for the exhibition. So most of the time when we get negatives in, we have to preserve them, but then to make them accessible, we have to digitize them and put them online. All of these photographs are all online. If you just go to Yukon Archives uh, and search for daily campus photography, you'll be able to find uh, the thousand or so photographs that we got from him and i see on your website the book of winter sports by w dustin white and the caption says we may not have had much snow this winter but we're ready for whatever comes our way with this 
and other books in our digital repository about skating and winter sports. So tell me what the book of winter sports is all about. This is one of our special collections areas, uh, a series of skating books um, that have all been digitized, uh, basically just documenting what early... 20th century recreation uh, was about. Some of them have short stories. Some of them have like how to go out and have fun in the s- in the snow in the winter time. That kind of thing. Um, they usually have really nice uh, coverings to them. They've got nice inscriptions on them. So there's there's an element of aesthetic about the skating books that I think are really unique. And what's pea soup? and Pink Loafers. Uh, That was a blog post, actually, that one of our visiting researchers came and wrote for us. Uh, She was looking at the James Marshall collection, and for those who know George and Martha, uh, a beloved children's book, um, we have materials in the Francelia Butler collection about James Marshall, and uh, she was able to come due to a research travel grant that we offer uh, to come and look at that collection and write for us. Well, primarily this morning we've talked about hobos, and the exhibit there and back again, A Hobo's Tale, continues through February 28th at the Dodd Research Center, 405 Babbage Road in stores, Monday to Friday, 9 until 4 o'clock. And for those who get inspired to check this out, where do you suggest they park, Graham? Uh, So you can park on Hillside Road at the South Parking Garage, um, as you would if you were going to gamble for a a sports event. Um, Parking is difficult, I understand, but we've kind of tried to get folks to get as close to campus as possible, and the the parking garage is the best way to do so. Graham Stennett, archivist and the curator of the Hobo exhibit, there and back again, A Hobo's Tale. This was different. This was fun. Graham, good to see you again. Thanks, Wayne. Thanks for coming this morning. 14 WILI.